Hello and welcome to the second in our series of pension jargon busting. Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined by an expert in all these things. Um, James, please introduce yourself. Okay, thank you, Richard. Um, my name is James Jones Tinsley. I'm the self-invested pensions technical specialist for Barnet Waddingham, and I'm based in their Leeds office. Thank you and welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Um, if you haven't seen the first one, we'll pop a link to it uh, in the description of this video, or you can find it on our website by searching for jargon and up to the pop. Uh, and we had lots of positive feedback and requests for more. So I'm going to get straight into it. Um, James, let's start with one which uh, there's a bit of a discussion about how to pronounce it. Is it off plus or off balls? Um, but whichever takes your fancy, yeah. what, what's that all about? Well, it stands for uncrystallized funds pension lump sum and it's probably one of the worst acronyms that hmrc have actually come up with because it doesn't really spell a word like most acronyms can do so i've heard it called various things by numerous people even to the extent of calling it a flump um, so but the idea is behind it that it was one of the things that came in with the pension freedoms in april 2015 so going off nearly eight years ago and the idea is that it's a lump sum payment or a number, a cluster of payments of some or all of the funds in your defined contribution pension, which is paid from uncrystallized funds that are not designated already into flexi access drawdown. Now, usually a quarter, 25% of each off plus, and that's how I say it, is paid as a tax-free amount, and then the remaining 75% is taxable as pension income at your marginal rate of income tax. Um, I think just a couple of other key things about these is that you firstly, you need to have sufficient lifetime allowance available in excess of the value of the, the F plus amount. And very importantly, because this is a real tax trap, taking an F plus will trigger the money purchase annual allowance. and uh, that then seriously limits how much new new money you can put into your pension scheme after that. Yeah, that's that last point is a real red flag for a lot of people. So, yeah. so watch out for that one. Um, thank you. That was brilliant. Now, one that's a bit of a, um, a common one we're facing at the moment is uh, the normal <laughs> minimum pension age. So what's that all about? Yes. What's happening to it? Well, uh, OK, the. I think it's quite self-explanatory in, in itself, uh, thankfully, in that this is the earliest age that you can normally take benefits out of your pension scheme tax efficiently. And what I mean by that is that you're not doing, going to be clobbered by HMRC with some tax penalties for dipping into your pension fund too early. Now, for most people, the current NMPA is 55 just going back, if I may, a few years, from A-Day, it was 50. And then from April 2010, it went up to 55 overnight. And you asked what's happening to it going forward. Well, based on what we know at the moment, from April 2028, it's going up from 55 to 57. And what is slightly, well, maybe mostly complicating uh, things at the moment is that the government are looking to bring in another protection regime whereby people may still be able to take benefits um, before 57 without incurring tax penalties rather than just a blanket change from 55 to 57 for everyone which is arguably what happened back in 2010 um, 
the only one other thing I'd like to say on that, Richard, is that for certain professions, especially different types of sports people, and also uh, uniformed organisations like the army, police, fire service, it is possible to actually draw benefits from your pension scheme before the normal minimum pension age without incurring any tax penalties for doing so. But it's yeah, very much brilliant. down to the rules of the scheme. Yeah, I'll just add to that, that um, some, and it's not many, but some personal pensions and, and occupational schemes have what's called an unconditional right to take benefits at 55. Um, if your scheme says you can take benefits from the normal pension age, then that will go up from 55 to 57 in 2028. But if your scheme or personal pension does say an unconditional right at 55, and those numbers are important, then you are uh, still protected from that point of view. And if you transfer away, you could lose that. So that's something else to watch out for if you're looking yeah. at switching pension funds around. Okay, yeah, thank you. Uh, right, this one um, was uh, requested by, by one of our uh, communities. So what's the difference between a master trust and a pension set up by deed? Okay, now um, I'll try and tackle this in a certain way, if, if I may, Richard. Um, you tend to find group personal pension plans are set up um, two bases, contract-based or by deed. And so if it's a contract-based scheme, what that means is that the, the employer selects the pension scheme, but the actual contract is established between the employee and the pension provider. And that's often an insurance company. Now, there is also um, organizations called independent governance committees or IGCs that have been introduced in recent years as an additional layer of supervision, governance and protection for members of workplace contract based pension schemes. So they, they're almost there acting a little bit like a non-executive director to make sure that the uh, members are getting value for money uh, and that everything's being done correctly by the insurance company. Now, in terms of for a deed, we're looking then at trust-based arrangement where there is no contract between the pension provider and the employee. Instead, the employer appoints trustees to hold the assets of the scheme in trust and the actual scheme itself is governed by a trust deed and rules. So that's where the deed aspect comes in and trustees are required uh, in their capacity as a trustee to act impartially in the interests of the scheme members and also to protect the assets from any intervention by an employer. Now master trusts have been around for a long time but they've really come to the fore over the last 10 years with the onset of auto enrollment and these are trust-based pension schemes but they are typically multi-employer occupational pension schemes. And here, an employer will select a particular master trust rather than setting up the pension scheme themselves. And unlike the contract-based model, which I started with, there's not an individual contract between the pension member and the pension provider. But the aim is to provide a workplace pension. And this contrast with a, a typical occupational pension scheme, which are usually set up to provide a workplace pension for a single employer um, or a group of employers all under the same company umbrella. Master trusts are now um, 
regulated by the pensions regulator since 2019 and there is a very very strict regime uh, imposed by TPR over these uh, master trusts simply to make sure that they do uh, work and that they're run correctly given that now since 2012 when auto enrollment started there are over 10 million people in these type of schemes uh, so you're dealing with a lot of people and a lot of money Brilliant. Thank you. I know it's a very complex situation, but please just sit the answer. So, so thank you. Thank you. So, that was a good one. So going in my time machine, the first ever pension I had was a contracted out SERPs rebate only pension. Crikey, lots of words Ooh. there. Um, so uh, we've been asked to explain what is SERPs followed by S2P. Okay. SERPs stands for State Earnings Related Pension Scheme. And it was introduced in April 1978, so we are going back in our time machine, and the idea behind SERPs is that it was an additional state pension for employed people, and I think there's a key thing there to stress that it's for employed people only and not self-employed people, and so this additional pension would be on top of that individual's basic state pension, and as the name suggests, the amount that's effectively built up within the additional state pension um, is based on that individual's earnings between what was known as a lower earnings limit and an upper earnings limit. And, and those values change from year to year. Now, SERPs was replaced in April 2002 by the state second pension, which is shortened to S2P. And that worked in a similar way to SERPs, but I think standing back in, in, in very general terms, it offered um, the potential for a larger pension to be accrued than would be the case with inserts, especially for those people who were in the lowest category of earnings. And this was known as the lower earnings threshold. Now, you mentioned the phrase contracting out there and with SERPs and S2P, it was possible to contract out of that additional state pension via a particular form of pension arrangement. Um, initially, with SERPs, it was mainly defined benefit occupational pension schemes. But as you know yourself, from, uh, a, from 1988, it then became possible to contract out through a personal pension arrangement, which, if Basically, it was to just contract out and nothing else was known as an appropriate personal pension. Um, now, contracting out via defined contribution arrangements came to an end in 2012. And then in 2016, it was no longer possible to contract out via a defined benefit arrangement. And the reason for that was April 2016 saw the introduction of the new state pension, which is basically a flat rate single tier state pension and anyone reaching state pension age now will qualify for the new state pension. Brilliant. So any power planners are looking at typically older personal pension contracts. If mm. you see something called protected rights funds inside there, that's mm. where uh, the money's come from, those national insurance rebates via SERPs. Um, so they used to be treated differently to non-protected rights, which are built up from employer or in employee contributions. Um, there's no difference now. So that's what protected rights are inside there. Right, um, I'm gonna squeeze one more in, um, if that's okay. So um, okay. this is a, a nice one. So let's go with QROPS. Okay, QROPS, another fantastic acronym. Um, 
Qualifying Recognised Overseas Pension Scheme is what QROP stands for. And it's an overseas pension scheme which HMRC uh, re recognises as being eligible to receive transfers in from a UK-based registered pension scheme. Now, in order to be a QROPS, that scheme has to meet various prescribed conditions within legislation. And I think, that it, again, standing back and looking at it from above, these requirements are all based upon the location of where the QROPS is established, i.e. The, the territory or the country, how it is regulated and the benefits it pays. And, and I think really, what HMRC want to avoid is people being able to transfer their funds from a UK registered pension scheme with all the you know, restrictions that are built within our own uh, pension arrangements to an offshore pension scheme that allows you to take your funds at 48 and you can take it all as a tax-free lump sum. I'm being very, it's a very, uh, I'm not saying any schemes like that exist, but it's that sort of concept that they are wanting to um, not allowed to happen. Um, I think importantly, any transfers to a QROPS from a UK registered pension scheme is actually one of the benefit crystallisation events. So at that point, the fund has to be valued against the individual transferees prevailing lifetime allowance to see if, if any excess is occurring there. Um, and there is also, and this came in in 2017, the possibility of there being a standalone 25%, sorry, 25% tax charge levied on the transfer value before the remainder goes across um, to the receiving QROPs. And again, going back to what I was saying earlier, that is largely dependent upon where the QROPs itself is based and where the transferee is deemed to be resident for tax purposes. So again, it's a disincentive to transfer if somebody's simply looking to offshore their pension scheme to gain some form of financial advantage. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and, and the revenue does have a list of QROP schemes, although I would say just because a scheme might be on there now doesn't mean it's going to be on there tomorrow because <laughs> it does change quite often. It, it does. In fact, I was going to say, Richard, just as a final point there, that this list comes out twice a, a month, usually on the 1st and the 15th or the nearest working day. And uh, it's freely available through the HMRC website. But you're quite right. I always look. There's always a summary of any changes. And inevitably, there's changes every time they bring a new list out so it's vital that you check that the receiving QROPS is on the latest available version of that list before the transfer happens because if ultimately the transfer goes across and suddenly it's no longer a QROPS then there could be real issues for the uh, seeding scheme and also the individual member. Now this being the world of pensions if we knock the queue off we're left with the ROPS. What's a ROPS? Yes. Well, <laughs> a ROPS is a recognised overseas pension scheme, and in order to be a QROPS, you've got to be a ROPS. And so, again, there are um, a number of conditions that an overseas scheme has to satisfy in order to be classed as a ROPS, and that includes some of the things I was mentioning earlier, 
the the benefits tax relief test and also the pension age test and again those tests are there to make sure that somebody's not purposefully moving money offshore in order to be able to take advantage of a of a lower access age or a, a more tax friendly form of benefits and there is also now um and this tied in with the introduction of this 25 percent tax charge there are requirements in terms of where the rops can be established so to just quickly summarize those member states of the european union norway Liechtenstein, or iceland a country or territory with which the uk has got a double taxation agreement though there is able to be an exchange of information and finally a country or territory with which the uk has what's known as a tax information exchange agreement and we'll finish in with another acronym there and i don't really know how to say it myself but like a tie <laughs> probably a, a very vowel heavy acronym <laughs> to finish with <laughs> yeah we've gone deep into the weeds on that one haven't we um that was brilliant um thank you james if anybody would like to know any more about those or you've got any suggestions for any other bits of jargon you'd like us to demystify them please go to the big tent on our website and pop a comment on there that's it from us so james thank you very much again for sharing your thank wisdom you, and de-jargoning the world of pensions <laughs> um and we look forward to seeing you again soon uh, goodbye Bye-bye.